Just want to get done, Preston. Sure. And um, basically, maybe his son has his correspondence, and that correspondence will now be a tshuva, and because time's running out. So who was Rav Henkin? Okay, Rav Henkin was an Eastern European rabbi born in White Russia. Um, obviously, a great Talmudic genius. When he was 17 years old, he wanted to be interviewed at the yeshiva. He knew the whole Gemara Erevin by heart, which is one of the hardest masechtas of Gemara to know. Um, Obviously a brilliant Talmudist. He studied mainly with Isser Zalman Meltzer, who was the father-in-law of Aaron Cutler, but a lot more moderate than Rav Aaron Cutler. Rav Isser Zalman Meltzer definitely floated more in the moderate Lithuanian, maybe even somewhat religious Zionist camp. Um, and he lived in Europe. He was there. He was a rabbi for a little bit in Georgia with Spartan. You know, it was interesting, Rav Henkin. And then in 1925, and this is what's relevant to us, um, he came to America. Now, when he came to America, it was the Wild West of Judaism. I mean, there wasn't any established religious authority. Um, it was crazy, chaotic. So he was like the first really big rabbi post-Sake. There was... Rav Yaakov Yitzchak, who was the chief rabbi in New York, which is a fascinating story in of itself to read about. Uh, it didn't go well. He was very, uh, if you ever read about it, it didn't work out well. He ended up leaving because he took on these corrupt butchers and they didn't like it and he ended up going to Israel. But Rav Henkin was probably, the, first of all, the first world-class post to come to America. And what did you say? 1925. 22 or 25, he came here. Way before, just to give you a point of reference, we're going to talk about Ramosha Feinstein next week. Ramosha Feinstein didn't come until 1936. Most of the great European rabbis, Ramosha was even relatively early. Most of them came during World War II or after. So Rav Henkin was like How old was 25 he? years before these people all came. How old was he when he came? He was born in 1881, so, yeah, about in his 40s. Okay, so he had smicha for many great rabbis. His main job was, again, he didn't have a yeshiva. He didn't really have students, and that, when we get to why he sort of got, he's been forgotten, that will be a piece of it. His main job was, he was the director of an organization called Ezra's Torah. Now, Ezra's Torah, if we were meeting in the chapel, you would know, I could give you a visual, all the shul calendars in America are done by Ezra's Torah. All the rulings there, what to do, are of Henkin's rulings. Um, he was the president, the head of Ezra's Torah. Um, when he died, my Rebbe, Rabbi David Lifshitz, took that over. And that's sort of part of the reason I got introduced to Rabbi Henkin. Um, he was a legendary person. He took, he made $50 a week. He never would take a raise. Um, he would walk three, four miles every Shabbos to raise money for Ezra's Torah. Um, just a very special, great person. You know, and again, it's interesting, but there's plenty of people like that. I want to focus on what's unique. I can find other people, but I don't want to not mention it. He had two sons. What did you say? You said he walked through. Yeah, to raise pledges. They, you could do that. Shuls do that. He didn't take the money, but he didn't take cash. But, he, um, didn't cash he didn't take cash. Um, he had two sons. One of them I met was Professor Lewis Henkin, who passed away. 
who was the greatest professor of constitutional law in America. You could Google him. He was fully observant. He was Felix Justice Felix Frankfurter's um, assistant, or whatever the term is. He would sleep in his couch on Shabbos. He would just stay in his office because he wouldn't travel. Observant man. My friend went to Columbia Law. Had him. He'd make a mincha minion. You know, he would pull the students in. He would learn. Fully observant, but fully uh, grounded in, in you know secular world. And his other son was a rabbi. I don't know much about his other son, but that son's grandson, his grandson, was Rav Yehuda Herzl Henkin, who most of his rulings we know today are through him. Uh, you know, we want to know Rav Henkin. We're going to know that through Rav Yehuda Herzl Henkin, um, the grandson who's sick. I've met him. He's in Israel. He's been a bit sick, but that's where we know it. So that's all the biographical information. He was the main POSIC in the United States into the 50s and 60s. Then Rav Moshe Feinstein sort of eclipsed him, um, and then he passed away in 1973. And he was widely accepted? Like totally widely accepted. So you're going to ask me why did Rav Moshe surpass him? We're going we're gonna to get there. Um, it's a good, it's a valid point. What were his main tshuvas? Okay, so one, like I said, we know him through Ezra's Torah, uh, the rulings on, on different things. Also, he was the first <coughs> rabbi in America. So all the gittin, how do the rabbis know how to write an English name, right? Some guy's got a name, a weird English name. How do you know how to transliterate or transcribe that name? Rev Henkin. Rev Henkin is the authority on any English name because he was the first person here and he dealt with it and whatever he came up with or said was done. Okay, So that's all the biographical, his profession, his children, who he studied with. Okay, And now let's discuss his main tshuvas. Um, and then we're going to, the main, the end is really the meat and potatoes, what he represents. And that's my own ideas. So what are some of his main tshuvas? Okay. There's a big argument that came up a few weeks ago about Rosh Hashanah. You have a problem. On one hand, you're not allowed to fast a half a day. So the problem is if shul goes long and you don't eat, you're violating that rule and it's a no-no. On the other hand, there's a problem maybe with eating before hearing the shofar. If you're not Hasidic, you have a, there's a problem with that. So this is like a problem what to do. So this shul just tries to get done before Katsos, the halachic midday. And that's how young Israel of Hollywood addresses that problem. Other shuls, more yeshivish places, daven longer. That solution won't work. They're not done at one. So they had a practice based on Ravar and Cutler that they have a kiddush in the middle. They have kiddush club on Rosh Hashanah. Ironically, the whole year they don't do it. Rosh Hashanah, they take a break. So Rav Henkin did not like that. Rav Henkin felt it was wrong to eat before the first 30 tekiahs because they are from the Torah, they're derisa. So he said it's better to hear the first 30 blasts than eat, you know, because the other 70, it's a custom. Um, that's one of his famous rulings, so he took on Rivar and Cutler. The other thing is, in general, he was a very common sense posting. For example, he had a big problem commercial merchants selling their chametz, um, but keeping it in their store. In other words, you have a store, let's say 
Publix is owned by a Jew. And Publix says, okay, I'm going to sell my comments, even if they cover it, but it's in the store. To him, that was a sham. It didn't make sense to him. He didn't think that was valid. Ramosha did think it was valid, okay? That's another thing. Another example of his common sense approach, civil marriage. Rav Moshe was strict in a way, but very lenient. And we'll discuss it more next week. Rav Moshe allowed, in other words, he would say if someone got married civilly or by reform rabbi, it's not a valid marriage. Now in a way it's demeaning, but in a way he's doing a great favor because then when that woman doesn't have a get, which odds are she's not, right? The reform or they got married civilly, and she gets remarried, you have a problem with mom's heirs, right? Mm-hmm. A child that, from illicit union. Um, Rav Henkin did not adhere to that. Rav Henkin said, look, if practically they're living together, because there are opinions in the Rishonim, I don't want to get technical, that if people are living together, we assume they're married, then they're married. And again, this is another example of his very common sense approach to things, like very straight common sense no, you know, we're not going to reinterpret it to make it work, just straight. Now, a big leniency. Rav Moshe Feinstein was against the concept of an Arab in Manhattan, okay? To this day, the Lower East Side does not have an Arab. Out of respect to him and his family, they don't have an Arab. It's one of the few places there's no Arab. Rav Henkin felt that definitely there could be an Arab in Manhattan. And probably today... Many communities, I know I lived in the West Side, had one. Probably they owe that to Rav Henkin because Rav Henkin. There are other great rabbis who allowed it, Rav Menashe Klein, but definitely the weight of his opinion certainly helped with that. Um, so these are examples of some of his main rulings that are known. Um, now, why am I interested in him and why do I think he'll become important again? I learned in YU with a Rebbe named David Lifshitz. I was young, I was 17, 18, I don't, you don't fully get everything. And then 20, 30 years later, you start make, things start making a little sense to you. And I started realizing that the approach that I was taught was not the standard YU approach, nor was it the yeshivish approach. It was something different. I couldn't pin it down when I was 17 or 18. And one of the ways I understand it more is by studying Rav Henkin. Because my Rebbe gave great Gemara Shirem. They published them. They're Shirem are all over the place. You can go to Torah Chaim. You can go to the Lubavitch based Medrash. They have them there. They study the Shirem, but he wasn't a posake. He did have Psach, but nobody recorded it. So unless you studied with him, you wouldn't really pick up that his approach is different, right? Anyone will know him through the Shirem. They're not going to know that. I believe Rav Henkin represents that approach. And since there's writings, I could rediscover that. What I sort of grasped when I was young, but not fully, I could reconstruct it through Rav Henkin. And I believe he'll be very significant because I'm going to show you, and this is the bulk of what we're going to discuss, he represents a middle position between yeshivish and modern orthodox. And I even believe that there are advantages to dealing with modernity with his approach. And I'll have to explain, I'll explain it now. Let's say modern Orthodox, more modern Orthodoxy in America. It's mainly predicated on Rav Soloveitchik, right? Everybody 
in this room would agree. There's a problem. If Soloveitchik studied with his grandfather, his grandfather was from behind Brisker. Brisk, if anyone studies it, is anti-modern, right? There's nothing modern about it in terms of the methodology, how they look at halacha. It's anti-modern. So you have this great figure whose Talmudic methodology, his tradition does not really jive with what he represents. And what I think happens is a lot of his students either freeze what he says, in other words, they're not they're gonna say, look, whatever of Soloveitchik said, we will accept it. Some of them don't, some of them roll it back a bit or contextualize it, right? You have some why you yeshivas today that say women shouldn't learn tomorrow. Soloveitchik said they should, right? They'll come up well, different, but I believe it all stems from one thing, because they don't feel secure. They don't feel like they have a secure tradition. So sometimes, if you have a more traditional approach that's more grounded in a tradition, what's called a Masora, it may be easier to deal with issues of modernity. It may not have insecurities. It may just be able to deal with it better. And I believe this is a big tension going on today. So how do I see examples of this middle approach? Zionism, okay? So, and also, why is this important? Because we live now in an integrated community here, right? Thank you. Amen. We live in a community, Hollywood's changed, that we have yeshivish people here. We interact in Hollywood, and I think it's good, with all types of people. And the truth is, your kids, your sons in Israel, they may go and say, okay, this modern orthodox thing's lovely, but the vast majority of rabbis and people that are seriously into serious Torah study, guess what they are? Dad, what are they? Yeshivish. So that's what happens to a lot of kids, right? But if we show, okay, there's yeshivish, we're not going to deny that. There's modern, which is a minority, but there's a third approach that is somewhat open to modernity. It's not fully modern. That may sway people's minds how to deal with a lot of these issues because now it's not this little minority of modern who the leader of Soloveitchik sort of broke with his tradition, right? There's not firm ground there, right? Again, I'm not nothing to detract. He was a great man. He was the only one in his time who could do what he did. In other words, he had to come at that time to fight the conservative movement. No one else could do it. He had a PhD. Rav Hankin did not. He could not, no one else could have been the philosopher of modern orthodoxy except for Soloveitchik. But I'm arguing in terms of halakha, right, that we may need other tools. So in other words, your kid comes back to you from Israel and says, Dad, this is nice and dandy what we have here, but the real action, where's the real religious Where's the real religious fervor and practice? It's over there. That you could say, son, you make a point, but there's a whole group of people, Rav Henkin represents one of them, that were in the middle. So now it's not a 90-10 argument. It may be more a 60-40 argument. Everybody get that? And that's why I think he's so important. Okay, so let's give some examples so where he's Lager, smack in the middle. If Rafsa Lager was on our shoulder, you would say that he was a modern Orthodox Jew? Totally. Of the philosophy. Like, I think if you, if you see him 
What do you mean see him? It's, it's not about how you look. You know? I think a lot of it is your dress. Your, your I don't think that's external. I'm, not, I'm saying his philosophy. Again, his sock is actually, at times, he was much more strict because of his brisker background than Ramosha Feinstein. We're going to discuss that next week. It wasn't consistent. He was the philosopher. Look, he had a PhD in philosophy. There were no other Godolin other than Rav Weinberg in Germany who had a PhD. I can't think of anybody else like that. Maybe Rav Herzog also. Right? So let me give you some examples of the middle where he's not modern, he's not yeshiva, Zionism. So he was anti-Zionist before the state of Israel. Okay? Vast majority of religious rabbis, orthodox rabbis were. Once the state was established, he was very angry. He wrote the people who don't support it or say negative things, it's terrible. Again, he was a pragmatic Zionist. He wasn't a religious Zionist. There are Jews living there. They need to be protected. It's our obligation, he wrote, to donate money, to help, and certainly not to badmouth Israel. So here's a middle position, right? Because you could say, your kid could say, look, this religious Zionist thing, it's a minority thing. I don't, it's not authentic. Here's something different that practically Zionist. End of the day, today, he's a Zionist. Right? If Hankin was living here right now, he would tell all of you support Israel. Give them money. Support them. Help Israel, right? So he practically, he's pragmatically a Zionist. Number two, the yeshiva world believes very strongly, if you go to any black hat yeshiva, they learn what's called nashim and nazikin. Stuff we don't do in our class, okay? They do more abstract Gemara. Why? And I'm not, again, I'm not criticizing it because they're more, it's very conceptual. It lends itself to lumdus, which is conceptual thinking. And it's, it is intellectually stimulating, right? They learn Gitin, they learn Kedushin, they learn about marriage, divorce, they learn about damages, they learn Bavakam, Bavamitsiya, Bavabasra. The problem is, and again, I work in a lot of Haredi schools, and they'll say, this is what we have to do. There's a lot of kids, the top kids love it. It's stimulating, it's interesting, but there's a lot of kids, it's over their heads, it's abstract. Why are we studying about cows, born cows, right? I get that question all the time, right? Modern schools generally lean towards studying more practical things. Like Moed, which is what we study, the laws of Yamtiv, Shabbos, Brachos. YU is a hybrid, actually, right? YU, they do a three year cycle. They do one year Nashim, one year Nazikin, one year Moed again. But they're dealing with older kids, they're not dealing with 14 year olds or 15 year olds. So Rav Henkin very strongly felt that you should not learn, you shouldn't have high school kids learn Nashim and Nazikin. Right? He felt very strongly <clears throat> that you first have to master the practical things. He goes, he goes, maybe in Eastern Europe, where everyone was so religious and there was so much knowledge just from the street, people knew what to do, that broke down. And if kids don't learn Shabbos, Beitza, which is about Yumta, we learned that last year, Moe Katan, right? You know what that is, right? Well, we're learning this year. If they don't learn these things, they're not going to know what to do. And the best way to know it 
is through the study of Gemara, right? Because that's the basis of everything. So if you get somebody, a kid smart in a black hat yeshiva, who go up to them, doesn't want to learn this stuff, will say, but Rav Henkin also agreed that we don't need to learn this. Because again, somebody thinks, a principal thinks, well, I really think practically 80% of these kids, it's a waste of time when they're 14 to learn. It doesn't relate to them. But how do I take on this tradition? Well, your answer. There are other great rabbis, maybe greater than the rabbis today, who felt differently that one should learn the practical first. He said once you master that for the top, top, top elite, he's talking even after you know, the beginning of base matters, then they should learn the other things. But first you must master these things. So that's another example of a middle position, okay? Number three, Hebrew, right? Today, if you look at the educational lay of the land, you basically have modern Orthodox schools which teach Hebrew as a foreign language, right? That's what their goal is. It's a foreign language. It's not really a religious language. There may be elements of it, but that's not the goal or purpose of the education. And you have yeshivish schools which do not teach any Hebrew, right? Go to Taurus, Chaim or whatever, or Mesachina or Lubavitch. They don't open up. They don't do any Hebrew, right? Rav Henkin would be against that. Rav Henkin writes that it's important to learn Hebrew for learning. That's a middle position. Not because it's the modern land of Israel's language and not to reject it like the yeshivish people do because it's connected to Zionism. But again, here's his pragmatism. To learn, if you know Hebrew, it's much better. So he actually wrote in, I mean, if, again, if we had time to read all these tshuvas, he wrote, what they should do is teach in English, right? Don't teach in Yiddish or Hebrew at first, but there should be a review class. You teach Gemara. In the review class, teach in Hebrew. Let the kids review and pick up Hebrew. Teach them the basic grammar first. Very pragmatic, very intelligent. I sort of agree with him because the critique on the modern schools, I critique the yeshiva schools with learning Nashim Nazikin, half the kids... Learning modern Hebrew is a waste of time. Again, for an elite, the top kids, it's great. A lot of kids gain nothing. Maybe if the school's focused on just having their comfort with understanding the text for learning, some kids would go on beyond that and maybe would learn modern Hebrew. Some wouldn't. But how many people practically use modern Hebrew, right? So at the end of the day, we invest 12, 13 years of our kids learning it. How much do they really use it? So his approach would be, let's make it a learning language. You know, let's have this. And again, in today's times, most of the great yeshivas on Israel are learning in Hebrew, whether they're Haredi or modern. So if your child had that ability to follow a shir in Hebrew, that's very significant. That would fit with his vision. Middle position. Feminism, we're going to do the tshuva. So again, maybe some modern-minded poskim would embrace feminism. He does not embrace it, but yet he doesn't run from it either. He says we must follow halacha. He will not bend halacha, but he realizes this could be a powerful force to motivate women to be more religious. There's a tshuva about saying Kaddish, 
Well, actually, I don't know if I'm going to read it. It's the back. And he says that. We should let women say Kaddish. And again, you have to put him in the context. This isn't 2019. He probably wrote this in the 40s or 50s. It was a different world. But he had the vision to say, you know what? You know, this is a way to bring people in. This is a way to connect them to Judaism. If it isn't a halakhic issue, in other words, his job is to rule out <clears throat> that there's a halakhic problem. He's not going to bend the halakha. It's a change in practice, so be it. Let women say Kaddish. You know, he sees very clear if it's only some shuls have a custom where only one person says it. He goes, in that case, they should not do it. But if it's a shul like ours where multiple people say Kaddish, let them say Kaddish. So, again, very forward thinking. It doesn't sound forward thinking to you because you're living in the world after he said it. But put it in the context. Um, but how much do you think maybe he's responding to the to the people of America? In other words, they were Zionists, right? right. They were supporting the state. I'm, I would think, on balance, the American Jewry, right? right? They were also feminists, and they weren't going to let that train. Right. Down. So he doesn't embrace. What makes him not modern, in my opinion, he doesn't embrace these things, but he's pragmatic to work with it. And what's the advantage? Now, you may not intellectually, you may say, Jonathan, that doesn't appeal to me. The more modern-minded rabbis sound better. Like if we read the Sridayesh's Tshuva Babas Mitzvah, he embraces it. Now, you may say, when that appeals to me more. The problem is, and again, this is my own idea, what's going to stick long-term? When your kid comes back from Israel, more religious, or your kid, or your kid, and you have to show him, well, if you quote the Srita A, she'll say, that's nice and dandy, but that's not traditional. So if we can get to the same place with a more traditional approach, I believe it will stand the test of time. It'll be more secure. And it actually, long term, may work better. That's what I think. That's just my opinion. Um, so he worked with these things. He saw... He didn't run from them. He didn't badmouth it, but he didn't embrace it. So it's a very pragmatic approach. Um, so those were the main points. We'll read his tshuva. We'll end with that tshuva because maybe we'll read Rav Moshe's tshuva and you'll see the nuance. Even though the rulings are 100% the same, the attitudes are very different. Okay, so I want to also point out, <clears throat> any questions so far? No. Um, I want to point out just a side Where did point. He, live? he lived in the Lower East Side, Lower East. near of Moshe, not far from there. Um, anytime you see a postache, you see rulings, or you hear rulings, you should always ask yourself what is their primary focus? What are they drawn by? In other words, some postkim are into textual truth, which means. The main thing is, is the text, is the reading of the text proper. I don't care what the minug is. I don't care what the lumbus is. I could care less what Kabbalah says. What I care is, does that reading of the text make sense? Who espouses that? The Vilna Gon, the Chazanish. Okay? Then there are those who espouse the conceptual truth. I don't care how the text is read. I don't care what the practice is. 
I could give a hoot less what Kabbalah says. It doesn't conceptually make sense. Who represents that? The Briskers. People like Soloveitchik's grandfather. That's how they look at Alaka, right? Then there are those like Rav Henkin and Rav Moshe. Again, there'll be differences that look at things by more the practice of the people. That's more important. In other words, even if the textual reading isn't perfect, if we can find a way to justify it within bounds, I mean, there's going to be limits. We're going to go with that. That's also the Arch Shulchan, <clears throat> who Rav Henkin, there's a debate, he may have gotten smicha from him, and felt that that was more authoritative than the Mishnabura. Okay? So that's another approach. So that's where he falls. Okay? Then there's another school thought. We'll call it Choshesh Lacholadeus, which in Hebrew means we're going to be suspectful for all or majority of the opinions. In other words, Textual truth isn't important. Conceptual truth isn't important. The practice isn't important. We're going to count up seven achronim, <clears throat> have an argument, and five of them say X, two of them say the other thing. We're going to worry about the five, even if the other data goes the other way, right? Or we may even care about all seven and be stricter where we can. That's more like the Mishnabura, right? When Rob Hankin was here early, he said he came here way before anyone else. So yeah. Didn't he establish some precedents? And so, like Rob Mosho came 15 years later, should have show, show some deference to Rob no. Hankin's Why? Because New York's a I don't know if you've ever been to New York, it's a very big city. You said they were both in the lower east side near each other. Yeah, but these were, these they're, they're, they were not the chiefs of little fiefdoms. These were the biggest postcom in the world. They were for all of America. You know, they're allowed to argue why, why. They're both great rabbis. I'm saying there's no issue with Ramosha arguing with them. I'm saying they're both great. These were the two greatest postcom who ever lived in America and probably ever will live in America. You know? Um, would it be an issue? Was it like everything was established? Well, certain things like the names with Get and Gittin, yes, nobody ever questions that. Or the Ezra Torah Luach. You know, the, those things stuck. Um, we'll see Rav Moshe was different. Rav is not going to be like this. You know, open-minded, but more yeshivish. It's not the third approach. When Rav Salavejic came along, did his Talmudim and like the modern Orthodox world defer to the Trubos of Rav Moshe Feinstein? Very often he sent them to Rav Moshe. We'll talk about that next week more. Because, again, it was easier almost for him. For Solveitchik was very strict on a lot of things. It was better for him to send you to his cousin, who was more lenient. To, yes, he often sent people. And we'll see next week that Ramosha had strong ties to Yeshiva University in that world. And was there an overlap with Rav With who? With um, Rav Solveitchik that he could have sent... These questions. I don't think as much. I don't think he wasn't his cousin. He respected him. He said many favorable things, but everyone respected him. There's not anyone in the world that would have a bad word to say about Ravenkin or, you know, they may disagree with rulings, but nobody would question his piety or his knowledge or his sitkis. I mean, he was a very special person. Did Ravosh ever talk in person? Or just oh, I think so, yes. They, were, they lived near each other. Right. 
they were neighbors, you know, within a few blocks. If you know the neighborhood, it's not a big neighborhood. Right. Um, you know, the yeshiva of most yeshivas actually... They weren't exactly, they weren't the same age, though, right? No, no, Rav Henkin was older. But... Rav Moshe's yeshiva is actually technically out. It's in Chinatown. Um, so the neighborhood's really small. Lower East Side. They got good pickles there. <laughs> so Rob Hankin learned under Rob Cutler's father-in-law? Yes, and so did Rav Moshe Feinstein. They both learned with him. Rav Isterzam and Meltzer. But he was nothing like Rav Aaron Cutler. Actually, he's made statements. They said, my son-in-law is going to be a fanatic that's going to change the world. And he was right, you know. Um, not nothing like him. What? In a good way or a bad way? A descriptive way. He was not. He was not the. You know, not the same. Um, what else did I want to say before we read the tshuva? So, why was he surpassed by Rav Moshe? One, like I mentioned, he didn't have a yeshiva. He didn't really have students. His grandson was his main student, who actually moved to Israel, and probably a lot of these rulings are more known there than here. A few other people, I think Rav Nachum Rabinovich, Rabinovich studied with him. Here and there, there were people, but no yeshiva, no way to give over the information like that. Number two, he wrote less. Okay, and that could be, and I, this is my own thought, because of the times he was in, he may have not felt <clears throat> that these juvas were for posterity. When Ramosha Feinstein wrote, those chuvas, those six, seven volumes, was a debate whether he wrote the seventh volume, were for posterity. Rav Henkin, because he was operating in a different world, he was dealing with different problems. Um, it could be he didn't feel that. Although that's not true, they are for posterity. So he didn't write as much, he didn't have students. Therefore, and again, maybe what I like about him was a weakness. He wasn't associated with an ideological camp. In other words, if Soloveitchik gets up at the Mizrahi convention, there's thousands of people, hundreds of people listening to him. He has a big platform. Ramosha Feinstein gets up at the Aguna convention, same thing. He was not part of any organization. Henkin was not affiliated with either Mizrahi or Aguna, or the RCA, or any of these organizations. So he had... What I see is a strength, maybe a weakness. But they all follow his calendar? This calendar, right? You guys follow his calendar. Yeah, everyone gets it. The Ezra Star calendar. Yeah, that, that and the getting now. Stuck. Um, okay, so that's why. Um, so let's look at his chuva a little bit, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. Any other questions? What about Rabbi Yaakov He's a very great rabbi, not so much a posake. He was more Rosh Hashiva. Uh, moderate Lithuanian Rosh Hashiva had the equivalent of a high school education. A uh, very great man. I mean, what, what's your, you have a specific question? No, I'm friends with the grandson, but I just right? Very special, you know, person, very moderate. Um, his son married Rav David Lifshitz's daughter, Rav Nassim Kamenetsky, who just passed away. I was actually supposed to meet him in Israel. Unfortunately, he passed away. Um, Rav Yaakov was probably similar to Moshe Feinstein. If I had a moderate, a good, a not 
third way. What made him a poster? I mean, who wrote him questions? If, who, Rav Hagen? Yeah, people didn't really know about him. And no, no, the, the Shul rabbis of the 1930s and 40s knew about him. I mean, they wrote him, there's all these right. questions people wrote him. He was known to these, we don't today know about him. People back then knew about him. You know? Um... But I think this 15, idea... 15, 20 years before all the other rabbis from Europe came. And he was the great, biggest rabbi. There was nobody else to ask. It's not like today you can... Was he someone in Europe or he was too young? Oh, he was a great rabbi. He was great, known as a great rabbi in Europe too. Um, so that's, that's the story. So we'll look at this tshuva a little bit. And then we'll... Any other questions? But what I mainly wanted to get across, one, is share with you about this great person, so his legacy's not lost. Two, this third way thing, it's my own idea, but <clears throat> the older I get, I think there's a lot of common sense to it because I think that will help with dealing with modernity. Um, it will help, you know, like I said, a lot of kids go to Israel, they don't believe in the modern orthodox philosophy, but if they see, well, many issues he aligns people like this. And he rep he's one representative. There's many more people. But he's a post sake So we have his chuvas. That changes the equation. Alright, let's look at this a little bit. Again, <clears throat> so two things I want to look at with this chuva. One, again, we're living in a world where every girl celebrates a bas mitzvah. So we have to roll the clock back. We have to roll the clock back and realize that the bas mitzvahs were coming from reform and conservative. So let's make you Rav Henkin, right? It's in the 1940s or 50s. You're a rabbi. There are rabbis writing to you from other communities, from Hollywood, Florida, and their congregants want a bas mitzvah. Their cousin down the street who goes to Temple Solel gets one, and this girl really wants to have one. And the rabbi's going to write you about it. This is what, I'm giving you the context, because for us to read this without understanding that is, is meaningless, because every girl in our shul gets some, you know, type of bas mitzvah. Okay, so again, the, that's one, I want to focus on that. And two, I want you to store <clears throat> what we say here because I want to contrast it with Ramosha Feinstein next week. Okay. So, the first paragraph is about something else. And often in Shuvas, you know, they would write one letter. The rabbi may have had a few questions. That's not relevant to us, so we don't really care about that. Let's skip to the second. We're going to read that. Okay. V'od v'nyin bas mitzvah li'yeladis, a bas mitzvah to a girl. Hine klal sh'amru. There's a principle shlalash that has yelled at him in We don't throw a child away. Bavadai. Now he's making a proviso. Before he's permitting it, he's setting out the parameters of it, right? Bavadai. Ain't lekrotar. Don't read. The girl shouldn't get an aliyah. Lo bas mitzvah lo shemisha cheres. Not even for her mommy or anyone else. Vein malapapa was in. Don't go there, basically. Um, now this is interesting. This has nothing to do with a bas mitzvah. This is historical context. 
Ramosha says the same thing. He doesn't want them doing anything on Shabbos, but it doesn't matter if it would be a boy or girl. Why? Kigorim Chil Shabbos. Because remember, a lot of people weren't observant. If you made a bar mitzvah here, or a bat mitzvah, in the 19, you know, thank God today it's different. In the 1950s, 80% of the participants, rest assured, took the subway if they were in the Lower East Side, or drove there if they were here. So he doesn't like it. Nothing to do with girls, just, it's just going to lead to Hill, uh, Hill Shabbos. All right, we actually could skip the rest of this because he's just showing that the Chazal made Zairus about shaking Lulav. They prevented mitzvahs so people wouldn't be machal. Same thing here, right? We don't need to, we don't really need to read that. There's just an interesting story. Okay, let's read this. Vumdam, however. Chovaseinu, it's our obligation, he, the Chanukah Sabanos Atarach Torah, to educate our daughters in the path of Torah. Ulahatziel, this is very interesting, and to save Mashafshalahatziel, what is possible to save. Remember, he's dealing with a tide of assimilation. Many people are leaving observance. It's not like today where the Orthodox community is growing. In his time, it was usually it was a checkout, not a check-in. Um, now he shows historical precedence for this. The Kamash Shatarchu Rabbanim Poland, and that that the rabbis in Poland did, would be a sod bate a safer base Yaakov that they made girls' schools. Now again, huge innovation. No religious girls got education before the 1900s. It was not considered proper. They would learn at home. They didn't learn. They learned to bake kugel. Whatever they did, they didn't go to school. It was a radical innovation to say that there should be girls' schools. So what Rav Henkin here is doing is he's saying, Bas Mitzvah fits in. In other words, Rav Henkin thinks historically there was an innovation in the 1900s that worked out pretty well. We may need another innovation in the 1950s, right? So that's what he's saying. That it was a great benefit for Judaism. The Gabkan and it was a benefit in Poland and in America. So you could counter him and say, Rabbi, great, we have Beis Yaakov. What do we need a Bas Mitzvah for? So he's answering that. But not everybody goes to Beis Yaakov. Not every Jew goes to Yeshiva. Right? So if Henkin was cognizant, you always have to ask yourself, when these posts come, they have Psach, who is their audience? His audience just isn't, and this is going to be very important for Moshe also, his audience isn't just very religious people. He's thinking about all Jews, even those nominally affiliated. You know, probably <clears throat> affiliated with orthodoxy, but very nominally, right? Okay. Okay. And they should learn. This is like a spark for the breath of their soul. And this boss mitzvah, they should learn about mitzvahs, and strengthening their religious foundations. Not just Hebrew. 
to carve Siyalis Limud Torah, and if this ceremony can bring them closer to Torah study, we certainly should strengthen it, right? That's all we really need to read. But his attitude's pretty favorable, right? Again, he's not embracing it for modernity's sake. He's not saying, well, boys and girls are equal. We should give them the same. He's practical. He's like, look, a lot of, it's hard, it's a struggle to be religious. If this is one, you know, tool in the toolbox to bring people in, and there's no halakhic issue, he, you know, set out the parameters that can't be Elias. He doesn't want it on Shabbos. That today, <clears throat> in our community, he wouldn't have an issue with, because the people are largely observant. But he's saying, he's looking at it very practically. When we look at Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe will permit it, but he doesn't have a favorable attitude to it. So again, this is a middle approach. It's not the Rav Weinberg. It's not Rav Moshe. It's something else. So are there any other questions? Is Weinberg the one from Aish? No, no. It's a different Rav Weinberg from... Um, he lived in Eastern Europe and Germany and Switzerland. So, I don't know. Does anyone else have any questions? That's the comment, I guess. I think that your idea that he's more palatable for these kids coming from unorthodoxy but are going to be scared of their minority because everyone's so pro month it's a very new phenomenon. And there's no reason to believe it's going to last. Why? I'm not saying you're wrong right, just why do you think that? I mean, it's like Jordan's jeans. What do you mean? It's pretty, pretty popular. <laughs> the whole idea that everyone's so sheepish. They're that's 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 No, no, but, but listen, Rabbi Freiberg, Rabbi Freiberg, look, practically, I talk to kids. No one went to Yeshiva 30 years ago. Right, that's why I said keep going. But for today, it would be relevant. But Rabbi Freiberg, you could, listen, you get a kid here, goes to Israel, comes back, seeks you out, and he's struggling it's sure with true, but I think I think in a historical timeline, it's very myopic. Meaning, like yeah, but then for right now, it's relevant. For right now, but first of all, I don't believe that many people have argued it's not sustainable and it will change. It's already changed. I mean, thirty years ago, it was if you went to Cola, you were crazy. Now, if you don't go to Cola, you're crazy. Right. right? There's no reason to believe it's going to stay the way. A, it's financially unfeasible, and B, this like none of these guys are happy. It's not true. People are going to work. They're going like any these schools for Haredim to get jobs and education in Israel are growing by the day. Yeah, but it's a minuscule percentage. Yeah, I think it's it's minuscule. It's a drop in the bucket. I think it's growing. It's not but in America, look, we have kids in our community. They they come back and you see them. For sure, but I think the second point is telling them, well, you 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 won't want you don't want to hang your hat on Rosal because he's the minority, but you feel overwhelmed by this sheevish, but order of Hankin. He's more minority than... No, no, but you're adding him to Rav Soloveitchik and others. And again, Rav Henkin is a representative. If you're, in that, if you're in that mindset of, like, numbers or power... Right, he doesn't have... Rav, Rav Henkin is no one. Right. I mean, not that he's no one, no one's right. ever heard of him. Right. So I don't think that's... No, but it's wrong. another thing. In other words, like but that. you could go, you can argue with a black hat person, say, listen, I just gave you guys five or six issues where he differs with the yeshiva world. Yeah, but you're talking in such a sociological context that, like, he's not a player in that. Not that he shouldn't be, he's just right. not. Right, but, but he's not a player, but let's make him a player. Yeah, but the whole point of this, the whole, you know, the whole, the whole argument is, like, you want to do what everyone else is doing. So at least, at least they know what a salvation minority. They never heard of anything before, so... Yeah, but if we're showing them a world where we... I saw this world a bit when I was young, right? 
saying, you guys be, didn't see this world. I'm trying to expose you to it. What'd you say? If you're gonna be so intellectual about it, you don't have this problem in the first place. You'll be like, yeah. But wait, there's two. Well, there's wait. There's two things I said. Yeah. I hear your point. But what about the Rosalovichik? Doesn't stand on firm ground because his tradition. There's two different points I said. That's one thing. The problem. Even a lot of his students are much more to the right of him, right? Well, because the ground is not firm. He's a brisker. His grandfather was not anything but pro-modern, right? So what grounds? Some will argue. Rev. His nephew, of Meiselman, says that Rev. Soloveitchik did all these innovations right. for Kirov. He's an outlier. Well, not such an outlier. Not, I could give you many of them. Okay, it's degrees. Of the students, he's the outlier. He's the most extreme outlier. But there's, there's, there's gradations. Right. But again, even today, the present Yuro Yeshivas are rolling back, like I mentioned with the Gemara. Rav Willix's girl should not learn Gemara today. He's rolling back. If it was based more on something that was a continuity of tradition, it's much harder to roll back. That's what I'm arguing. There's less security. There's a big insecurity, I see. I don't think our paintings can give any insecurity. Now, this, is really, this is really also theological. Then do him, or it's true, but it's, I just don't believe that he's going to fill that role. Because he, did, because, he does, because he didn't. So to now make. But we can, but we can, but people discover new things. Yeah. Look, what's Neo Hasidus? Nobody in this building or in YU cared about Casitas 20, 30 years ago. I went there, they would laugh at it. Now kids find meaning in it. If they found that, they could find this. They could find anything. I'm just bringing out something in the tradition that I was sort of exposed to that people don't know about. You know, that's what I'm here to do. I'm saying it's a tool, and again, I'm not negating Rosalvechik. Probably all the tools are good, but this is another tool. You know, it, it changes the equation a bit. Because, again, there's more security. He's, <clears throat> when you deal with things practically, it's harder to knock it off as versus when you embrace the modern modernity. It's like, I'll give you a great example. There's a big moral problem. You're not allowed to give gifts to non-Jews technically, right? So there's different ways to deal with that, or even give them compliments. So that doesn't sit well with anyone in this room, I think, right? It doesn't sit well with no. you. I didn't think so. All right? So the modern approach would be to follow the Meiri. What does the Meiri say? Well, that's only talking, that prohibition is talking about the seven nations. They don't exist today. Hence, none of these prohibitions apply. Hence, you could go and compliment non-Jews from today till tomorrow. Now, Morally, it appeals to me. It's great. The problem is, if you study enough, and I don't know what you feel, the Mary is a minority position. And not only that, he was only discovered, <clears throat> they lost his writings in the 1900s. So I like it morally, but the pragmatic approach would be, well, we can't have animosity. You chisel away at the prohibition versus taking it on head on. And that approach, while it's not morally satisfying, it will last the test of time. The Meiri, some kid will go to Israel, flip out, 
This is nonsense. I heard in the shul, we follow the Miri, the rabbi got up there. It's nonsense. 30 other Rishonim disagree. The other approach, the kid can't say it's nonsense. Great Postcom said it. That's my argument. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't think the kid from the end is going to last the test of time. That, that may or may not be. And I'm not going to last the test of time. But I'm saying that's... Same thing with Bas Mitzvah, right? It's morally better to take the modern. I'm morally drawn to it. But I don't think it, it's going to work for a lot of people. So a lot of times to deal with these issues, you deal, you chip away, you deal with it pragmatically, like Rav Henkin did, it will last longer, it's more secure, it's more firmly rooted. You can't question it as much. I mean, I'm just not as clear, because I have a very myopic view. You know, I grew up in... in, in Sotmer. I grew up in, <laughs> no, in, in KJ, in the right. modern Orthodox world, right? So, right. But who, who, are, who's asking him these? Who, where were these shilas coming from? What was all the, over the country? I understand that, but but what were the communities like? W- weren't they like that, sort of just to the right of conservatives? Yes, yes, and that's why. By the way, he has a tshuva. Forgive me for quoting it. He gives. He allows you to daven in a shul without a makitza. That's going to blow your mind. Now, let me give you the context. So you don't all run out of here and go to Temple no Sinai tomorrow. What? If there's no alternative. So let me give you the context. And it shows you what a broad-minded person he was, and it gives you the context. This is the case. Jonathan Hirsch lives a mile north of Oak Ridge. Now, Oak Ridge is a long walk to here, right? Two miles is not doable this time of year. Now, the choice is going to a shul that's halachic but doesn't have a pizza, right? And maybe Jonathan can influence them or not going to shul. He says in that case, one has to weigh what they should do. Now, don't, we're used to patent answers. They don't have a machit, so don't go there. He doesn't think like that. Now, what's behind that? And we'll get to this next week. Machitza is is important, but there's a range of opinions. Rav Moshe will tell you it's an Isser de Raisa. Rav Salvechik will tell you it's an Isser de Rabbanan. There were posts who said it's a Minug. Now, it's important, I would, you know, he would definitely tell you don't set up a shul without it, but in the case where you have no other option, he would say maybe, maybe if you could influence those people. He was dealing with a lot of non-religious people, so like and he wanted to influence them. He didn't want to run from them. Some posts can want to speak, like the Chazonish, there's a great book about him in Hebrew. He was speaking to the elite. We're going to see with Ramosha the beauty of him, why he was so great. He spoke to two audiences. Every tshuva I'm going to show you next week is two-tiered. Two-tiered anything with modernity. Two audiences. The Chazanish was only speaking to super-religious people. He had nothing to say to us, really. I mean, to people like us or less religious than us. Rav Henkin was speaking to people much less religious. So he the, was doing anything to keep them in the fold. So the communities that were, let's say, in Baltimore or... The whole the, country. Well, but the, the more religious, already religious, established communities were, were probably not even asking him. Probably not as much, but they still respected him. But he was, he was, that was most of, when you say very religious. In 1930, no. there weren't very many very religious people. 
weren't. No, it's not like here today. This is. They would look at this like, whoa. You know, they, they would never... There were very few Shabbos people. So it was very different. So he, he's very... I mean, I think he's very open-minded. I mean, that, that shuva today would blow people's minds. But he said it. It's written in here. What? I don't think he compares with Ravenkin. I mean, he's a black hatter. Total black hatter, yeah. Hardcore black hatter. With a little science background, I think. But yeah, he's pretty I don't I'm not so familiar, but he's not <clears throat> he's not in the same level as the people we're studying the next three weeks. Not even not even close. Any other questions? Okay. Something different, I hope, right? I remember we just took you for 